Father, um, as you know, we design our worship times here together to be the time where we lift up uh, in song to you. We hear stories like we did with Wayne and Bev to get us focused on uh, your word and the topic for today. And then, Lord, we turn to your word right now as we're going to do. And I pray, God, that as we uh, tap into a subject that i got to believe all of us have at least some interest in, uh, if not for our own marriage or the marriage that we've come out of or the desire to be married someday, Lord, all of us have to deal with this thing called marriage. I pray, God, that you would uh, give us insight from your word, help us to be non-defensive, to just be on the same page as to what you say about marriage. And uh, Lord, may we even learn something today that we might not have known before. At the very least, inspire us, God, in our own relational base to be more like you and to follow and trust you. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I want to begin uh, today by asking you a question, and though it's an ideological question, it's an absolutely critical one nonetheless, and I can promise you that how you answer this question will have everything to do with the shape that your marriage will take, the level of joy and intimacy it will have, and even the strength that you will find in marriage and the endurance to deal with its difficult storms. It's the initial question that each and every one of us should be asking and answering when it comes to this thing called marriage, and it's this. Look up here on the screen. Is marriage something that is simply and solely a societal and cultural norm that each generation makes up as it goes along, or is it something designed by an outside source, intelligent and personal, that carries with it certain parameters that need to be worked within if it is going to work right? It's an important question, folks. I want you to think about this. Marriage as a societal, cultural norm that each generation massages to its own liking, or is it designed by an intelligent and personal outside source, obviously being God, with certain instructions, stipulations, and parameters that make sure it runs best? Because you see, if you were to read any modern day sociology textbook, you're going to find this first definition as the one that majority of our world uses today. That marriage is a societal and cultural norm that each generation invents, passes down, and changes to fit its current mores or values. It's part of a naturalistic worldview. Quite frankly, it's part of a non-theistic worldview. And in our increasingly post-Christian secular society, you look, it's the way that many people are starting to see marriage even in our day and age. It's alive and well today. And yet, if you have room for our second option, that of an outside intelligent and personal source, God, giving us the framework of what marriage can and should be, that if followed by both parties will by and large work right, if that's your choice, that I would submit to you that it has the capacity to change everything, that it's a whole new world now on how you view and function in your marriage. You see, folks, one view says that you're bound by the culture and the times that you live in, while the other view says that the same design has been going on for thousands of years now, proven by millions of people who have taken God at his word. One view says that the rules could all change tomorrow. And lo and behold, in our culture, we're seeing people changing the rules from day to day. While the other view says that though there's variety and spice to life, there's some things that never change and that God has revealed those things to us on what marriage can and should be. One view says that you're in it alone, without divine resources, while the other one says you're in it with a lot of help from above. So let me ask you, which is it for you? societal cultural norm or outside source from on high how you answer this question 
which side you come down on, as I said earlier, will not only determine your view of marriage, but I believe ultimately the joy, strength, satisfaction, security, and even longevity of your marital experience. Now, I wish I had time today to debate the, uh, this issue and kind of opt for the option that obviously I would choose as a pastor, that idea of marriage being designed by an outside source. But maybe that's for another message. We don't have time to do that this morning. What I do want to do today in our time remaining is I want to spend my time outlining for you what God's design is for marriage in hopes of enticing you more to this biblical view of marriage. Many of you are on the internet, if not all of you, and you know that when you first bring up your internet browser, it goes to what? Your home page, right? It goes to your home page. In a very real sense, I want to take you to God's home page today when it comes to marriage. I want to take you to how he originally had designed marriage to be, again, in hopes of enticing you more into his way of thinking. And so if you've been a believer here for years on end, a veteran believer, then today will probably be just one big encouragement, kind of a big attaboy to you. And yet if you're newer to the faith or maybe even seeking here today, my hope is that as you latch on to God's view of marriage, it will encourage you that he really has given some thought to this thing that quite frankly as we're going to see in time we've made a mess of. And so four things that God tells us about his design of marriage, four things that we need to know if we're all going to get on the same page as to what marriage is. And the first thing that God says about marriage is that it's primordial. It's primordial. And I can't even help but laugh because some of you are thinking, no wonder your kids call you a dork. Primordial? I mean, what's that about? Well, the reason I had to choose the word primordial is because I want them all to begin with a P, and you're going to see that as we go along this morning. It's true, but this is actually a very accurate and, and, and powerful word to describe how God has designed marriage. So bear with me. Uh, primordial is defined by Webster's Dictionary as this, the first created or developed, the earliest form in the growth of an individual or entity. So we've all heard the phrase primordial soup when it's talking about creation or something like that. It's just the initial uh, ingredients of it all. It comes from the Latin word primordium, which is the combination of two Latin words, primus meaning first and ordiri meaning to begin. So the word literally means to be the first to begin, the first to be created. And folks, I would submit to you that this is precisely God's thinking when he instituted marriage. That each and every marriage is a new entity, a new first, if you will, something fresh, original, and novel that God has now created as a result of the man and the woman joining together. That this idea of primordial is exactly what God has an idea when he designed marriage, that it would be something new and fresh as a new family is now created. If you don't believe me, I want you to open up your Bibles and look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Some of the very first words in the Bible, the very first marriage ceremony, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. If you didn't bring a Bible, look up here on the screen and look at what it says. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Leave your father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, many of us have heard this passage before. It's very popular, but I want you to latch on to three words or phrases there that will explain to you completely what God means when he says that marriage is a new entity in and of itself. First, focus on that word leave. 
that word leave. It's the Hebrew word azab. It means to loosen, to relinquish, to refuse, to forsake. Jesus quoted Genesis 2 and Matthew 19, and in requoting it, he used a Greek word that means to entirely give up, to leave behind. You get the idea. Marriage is about leaving something behind, in this case mom and dad, to begin something totally new. And how does that work? Well, move on to the second key phrase here. It works by the man leaving and then holding fast to his wife. You see that there? Holding fast. If you were raised on the King James Version of the Bible, you know that it uses the word what? Cleave here. You're to leave and to cleave. Some of you have heard that before. I actually like that word. This is the Hebrew word dabak being talked about here. And it means to follow close, to stick, to take. It means to stick together as with glue, to be firmly cemented. It's the idea that when that husband marries that wife and says, I do, that God has now joined them together. They've cleaved so tight that it's like glue holding them together. Adam Clark, a famous commentator from on old, says of this passage, he says, a more intimate connection formed than even between parents and children. Don't miss this. Something new is taking place here. You leave and you cleave. And then notice it's not done, however. That there's a result of all of this, and it's our third phrase there that you need to latch on to, and that is that all of this results in one flesh. It results in one flesh. You've heard that before. But what you probably didn't know is that this phrase, one flesh, is actually debated among Bible scholars and has been for like thousands of years now. Uh, the old Jewish rabbis actually argued that what this meant was just the kid, the offspring. You know, the husband and wife come together and they have a child and that child is one flesh. But as people went along, and especially as the New Testament came along and Jesus started commenting on this verse and this, and this reality of one flesh, we realized that God had something more than that in mind. That yes, it probably refers to offspring, but even more, it's referring to the fact that God does something in joining husband and wife together. He creates a knitting of their hearts, their souls, their very lives, so that two have now become one. Maybe now you can see why I say something primordial is happening here. Add all this up, folks. You leave, you cleave, you become one flesh. What God is telling us is that marriage is the beginning, the first cause of a new and original entity, a family, if you will, now don't miss this, that is now separate from what it came out of. This is the first principle of God's design. He's creating something original, something fresh, a new place to call home. And some of you are thinking right now, well, Jamie, man, you got a really good gift at stating the obvious, like everybody knows this, right? I mean, what big whip? What's the big deal about this? Listen, folks, I'm not sure that the average person today in culture, let alone the average Christian, really has gotten into the richness and depth of what it means to get married and have God create a new entity. And the reason that I know this to be true is because I can't tell you how many times I have to say to young couples who are now married and are still relatively codependent with their family of origins, let it go. Man, you've started something new here, something fresh. I mean, you're on your own now. See yourself as a new family unit. And don't even get me going about the parents. I mean, how many times have we seen parents who just refuse to let go of the kids who are now like 25 and married and fail to realize that they have their own family unit on their own? 
And in fact, I found myself more than once in the last 20 years of pastoral ministry having to say to parents, keep in touch with your kids and let go. Support them in times of need and let go. Give advice gingerly when needed or even when wanted and then let go. Bless them and let go. I think it's one of the most beautiful things theologically about marriage is realizing that something new has begun here. It's the start of something that God has designed and ordained and we're now on our own. You know, I remember uh, one of the first times Kim and I realized this. My wife Kim is in this service with me here. And uh, we got married in 1988. And we were both born and raised in Cleveland. And uh, when we got married, we were, I was doing my graduate work in Chicago. And a couple years later, we had our first kid, Hannah, and we moved to Detroit where I did my first pastorate. And for the first one or two years in Detroit, we would consistently refer to Cleveland as home. In other words, we'd say, what are we going to do for Christmas? We're going to go home. You know, what are we going to do this summer? We're going to go home. Hey, I'm going to call home right now. And even though we were living in Detroit, we kept referring to Cleveland, where we were born and raised, as home, even though we were married, even though we had our first kid. Now, forget about the fact that most people wouldn't want to call Cleveland home. We were still doing that. And we caught ourselves at one point in our marriage having the discussion where we said, you know what? As much as we love our family, and as much as our family is all back in Cleveland, that's not home anymore. It was bittersweet. Do you remember that, Kim? We were like, you know what? Home now is here with me and with Kim and with Hannah, our firstborn, and Abby, who was on the way. Home is now Detroit, which was really depressing. But, but to think about it, we've gone from Cleveland to Detroit. You know, but, but home was where Kim and I were, and it took us about four years into our marriage to realize that God had done something cool here, that God had brought her and us together, and that that is now home. And yet what a healthy thing that was for us to honor God's design for marriage. The first thing that a theistic worldview honors about God's design for marriage is that a new creation has happened here. It's primordial in nature. Now, as many of you know, we're just ramping up. So moving on, notice a second thing that God tells us about this design for marriage. And I promise no more dorky words. And that is that marriage is further designed to be permanent. Is that a clear enough word? permanent. And so check this out. Thousands of years later, while discussing Genesis 2.24 with some critics, I want you to listen to what Jesus himself adds to this understanding of God's view of marriage. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. This is fascinating. Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2.24 there. And then he adds, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Interesting. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, most of you have heard that phrase. It's repeated at every wedding I've ever been to. What God has joined together, let not man separate. But I need you to back up a little bit here and look at the context or understand the context of what Jesus is, how Jesus is making this statement. He's being asked in the context here by some of his critics, is marriage permanent or can we get out of it at any time for any reason? Some things never change. Every culture since the beginning of time has asked that question. People ask it even today. Is marriage permanent or can we get out at any time for any reason? And there are basically two parts to Jesus' answer here, what I call the God part and then the man part. So first, notice the God part. He says what God has joined together. What God has joined together. 
Now that phrase, joined together, is a very interesting phrase in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in. It literally means to be yoked together. It's an agricultural term when they used to have to plow the field by hand or with the use of animals. And so the idea pictures you got two um, oxen, ox there, oxen, and to keep them in line, to keep them going in tandem with each other, you had one of those big wooden yokes that you used to put on them. Probably not the most positive picture of marriage that Jesus could have used, but it's the one he's using anyways. And he's saying that marriage is like a big yoke around your necks holding the two of you together. That's what the word join together means. But that's not the real point of what he's trying to say. Don't miss this. He's trying to say, God has done this. God has yoked you together. That when you said your I do's, when you made a commitment in your heart, verbalized by your mouth, God was there and joined you together as husband and wife. And folks, let me just add that in 20 plus years of being a pastor, I have heard every imaginable excuse to try to weasel out of and or rationalize that maybe God wasn't watching and didn't take you at your word when you said, I do. Don't come up to me after today's sermon. I've heard it all. We were young. We really didn't know what we were doing. It happened in Vegas. I don't think we fully understood the nature of the commitment we were making. He or she was a different person back then. And then my all-time favorite, we weren't believers, and there wasn't a minister, so it couldn't have counted. And I'm like, hogwash, it counts. Let me tell you why it counts. God was there. Go back to my sermon in, in December. God is sovereign. He's everywhere present all the time. So whether you got married at a chapel in Vegas or whether you got married at a beautiful little church with your minister, it counts. The book of James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And here's the deal. When you said I do, God was there and he said, deal. I take you at your word. I take your I do as your word. And he sealed you, according to Jesus' words here, as husband and wife. He joined you, yoked you together. And though next week we're going to tackle what happens when a marriage breaks down and even ends up in separation or divorce, and you're going to find that God is good and gracious and is bent on helping his people heal and restore and even restore the years that the locusts have eaten. You're going to find that. Please don't miss that as we're laying out God's original design here this week, that he intended it to be permanent. That what he joined together, did you notice man's part? He says we're not to separate. That phrase literally means no place or no room between. Again, it pictures that glue that Genesis 2.24 pictured and the fact that you're not to try to put a crowbar, nothing in between that, to try to pry it apart. Let no human ever try to rip it apart. As the famous Reformation leader John Calvin says in commenting on this passage, and I quote, to tear from him, as it were, the half of himself. That's the idea here. That he'd be ripping apart half of you to rip apart what God has joined together. You get the idea. God says it because he has joined together the man and the woman, because he took them at their word. Now let no man separate, let no human being make it not so. So you got primordial, you got the fact that it's a new creation, you got permanent. And then notice with me a third th thing that God designed marriage to be, and you're going to like this one, though it's tough to get your heart and head around it, and that is that God created marriage to be purposeful. He created it to be purposeful. 
I want to read for you a passage that talks directly about marriage out of the New Testament that should be read at every wedding, but you'll hear in a minute that it's not, and you'll even see why. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 25 gives us the purpose, or one of the key purposes of marriage. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I've done over 100 weddings in the last 20 years, and I would say in over half of them, when I've suggested that we read Ephesians 5 at their wedding, they've said, no thank you. And that just blows me away. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, this is like God's word. They say, Jamie, we're not going into that quagmire. We're not going to read about this submitting stuff and loving stuff, and we're just not doing it. And I say, well, what do you want to read? And they'll say, well, how about 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter? I'm like, you guys are wimps. I think we need to read Ephesians chapter 5. You know, we live in a culture today that, that really has gotten confused about this whole idea of roles and submission and love when it comes to marriage. Let me try to set a few things straight. First, did you notice there that that passage begins by talking about mutual submission and mutual equality? Did you notice that? It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the whole tone and tenor of that passage. So the fact that in marriage you are equal partners, equal before God, you are to love and respect, honor and cherish each other. There's purpose and play behind this submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. However, within marriage, God has also said there are certain roles. It's tough for our culture to understand this or even to get its head and heart around it because of all the rebellion. But it says there, husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved this church. I would submit to you that's the tallest order in this entire passage. That husbands, you are to love your wives, honor them, respect them, care for them, cherish them, just as Jesus does the church. That as Jesus Christ laid down his life for you, you're to lay down your life for your wife. And then in response, as a role, the Bible says, and as your husband leads and loves his family, submit to, to them. Love them. Follow their lead. Trust them as the one who is the leader of the family. That's what Ephesians 5 is laying out here. And folks, whether you can deal with all the complexities of this or not, what I need you to see is that at the very least, there's incredible purpose that Ephesians 5 is laying out here. That marriage is to be the seedbed and source of unconditional love on par with God's love for us. The kind that creates safety, security, healing, and wholeness, all backed up by submission and trust. And again, I know it's hard for some of you to see this given the pain that your own marriage has caused. But again, go back to the homepage here. God has designed marriage to be, as my friend Larry Crabb says, the safest place on earth where you can find true relational security with each other without repercussions, without shame, without rejection, and without abandonment. This is why I said last week, as a quick side note, I said you know, that, that, that God gives us eternal security in Christ, the fact that he's never going to let go of us once we've come to Jesus. But I believe that marriage gives us relational security, that it's the one place where we can be relationally secure with somebody who's never going to leave us, who's always going to stay with us. 
there's a purpose behind this thing called marriage. And when it's lived right, when husbands love their wives as Jesus Christ loves the church, when wives respect and follow their husbands, I'm telling you, I've never seen a situation like that that wasn't beautiful and God-honoring and that brought peace and joy and security to both involved. And let me just add at this point that we're not even done yet. That as we've seen that marriage is primordial, that as we've seen that marriage is something that also is permanent, and even purposeful, that God has saved the best for last, that we're not even at the pinnacle of the mountain yet, that there's one last thing, one even more higher purpose that God has created marriage for, and you're really going to like this one. And that's our fourth aspect, and that is that marriage ultimately is designed to be picturesque. It's designed to be picturesque. I know I said no more dorky words, but believe me, this is not one. Look at how Ephesians 5 goes on after it talks about roles there to describe what marriage is about. Look at verses 25 to 32. It says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This, is, this mystery is profound, but I am talk, for I, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, folks, I don't want you to miss here a very subtle but powerful interplay that Paul is giving us here that takes us to the mountaintop of God's design for marriage. Likening marriage to God's love for his people, Paul is telling us here that marriage actually becomes a living picture of what God's love for his people, the church, is all about. And though the link is not always clear, that's why I think he says it's a mystery, he's telling us that when a couple leaves their respective families that they were born in and begins this primordial relationship called marriage, and then love each other with unconditional love, the kind that cherishes and nourishes and cares for each other and pours selflessly into each other, when they love each other like this, it actually becomes a picture of how God loves us, how he likewise cares for, nourishes, pours into, and cherishes us. Don't miss this. Marriage is designed to be a picturesque thing revealing to all who see it who God is and what he is about. The original design, the homepage, is that they would look at your marriage, my marriage, and say, whoa, if God is anything like that, I want him. If God can love like the two of you seem to love, if God can submit like the two of you seem to submit, if God can care like the two of you seem to care, if he's at all like that, then I'm in. I want God. That's part of his design here in marriage. That your friends, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends, your kids will look at that, look at you, and be drawn to God. And so let me ask you a simple question that might bring this home. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words? Let me see your hands. Picture is worth a thousand words. 11, 10. Man, if you didn't raise your hand, you're a dork. Every one of us <laughs> have heard that phrase before, right? Picture is worth a thousand words. One of the reasons I believe that that phrase has survived the test of time is because it's really true. That you and I have all had experiences where we've seen a picture and it's moved us 
And we've stood in awe in front of that picture with a thousand thoughts going on inside of our head without even saying a word. I've never been to the Sistine Chapel, but I've looked at their pictures a lot on the internet. And I'm told that if you go to the Sistine Chapel and see Michelangelo's famous painting of creation uh, with Adam and God, that it just blows you away. So you see up here on the screen, I mean, this picture, I've looked at it for, you know, not hours, but minutes on end on the internet. And, uh, and, and, and you know, it's an amazing picture to see Adam there and, and God and to see that little distance as they're trying to touch, probably symbolizing the fall and the fact that all of us feel so close to God, but, but also just a finger away and the fact that God loves us and he's there and he's closer than we think, but we're still fallen. I mean, without even saying anything, a picture is worth a thousand words. Or if you remember two years ago when we were here at our church and we did uh, the whole idea of the Thomas Cole series, and we looked at this one picture, give me a click here, guys, of, of manhood. I can't tell you how many emails I got from men during this series when we looked at Tom Cole's picture of manhood. And you see the guy in the boat, and he's sort of heading into the rough waters, the turbulent waters. And like most men, he's just hitting his knees and praying for divine help as he's entering into the rough waters. I have stared at that picture for hours. I have it in my office here at church. A picture is worth a thousand words. Or a series I'm doing with some men in the marketplace right now, give me another click here, guys, is Rembrandt's famous The Return of the Prodigal Son. Again, a beautiful picture. You can see there the highlights on the left there where the son is returned back in Luke 15, that famous story, he's returned back to the father. And the father is placing his hands on the son and receiving him back as he's gone through literally hell and high water as he spent his inheritance and then you got the older brother there on the right who's looking so austere, but you know that inside he's seething. He's all mad that the younger son's getting grace. Rembrandt knew what he was doing there. A picture is worth a thousand words. You and I have all had experiences like that. And so here's the point. When God designed marriage, and this includes your marriage, he designed it to be a living picture that without saying anything, would communicate a thousand words about love, grace, submission, care, sacrifice, selflessness, all pointing to Jesus Christ. Are you now beginning to see why the initial question I asked you is so important? Marriage, this commitment of a man and a woman and vice versa, is not something simply rooted in culture and society, though it is, but it's designed by God, the creator and author of life, and in all of his infinite and awesome wisdom, he's given us some key truths and parameters that allow us to make the most of it. Now, next week, one of the things we're going to talk about is what happens when God's design gets frustrated. What happens when it doesn't work? And many of us have been there or we're there right now. And again, we take a very realistic look at that as, our, as a church here. And again, this is a series on grace, so we're going to take a look at how God responds when our marriages really struggle and suffer. And we're going to talk about that next week. And it doesn't take a PhD in rocket science to realize that there's a lot of marriages today, especially in our 21st century post-Christian secular society, that have fallen on some very rocky times, to the point that one in three most likely aren't going to make it. And so what I want to do in the few minutes that I have left here with you guys is I want to do a couple of things. First, I want to just share with you a couple of tips, even before next week, that Kim and I have learned over the years. My wife, Kim, we've been married about 23 years, that have kind of kept us focused or in line with God's design. Just a few things that might help keep you going. And then I'm going to show you a video. We're going to end on a really positive note. I'm going to show you a video that I think you'll find moving when it comes to how you think about marriage. 
And so let me just share with you a few things that Kim and I have found helpful over the years in keeping us in line with God's design. And the first thing is simply this, that when we don't feel like keeping the vows, we've allowed the vows to keep us. This was shared with me years ago by one of my mentors, my senior pastor, when I was a, first became a Christian, that when you don't feel like keeping the vows, allow the vows to keep you. You know, the reality is, talk to anybody who's been married for any length of time, there really does come a day or there comes a time where you wonder what you've gotten into, where that yoke thing isn't a real positive analogy, where it becomes difficult, the road that you're on. And for some, not all, but for some, if not most, you wonder if you can continue through with your vows, because a lot of people around you don't. And my mentor, Ludd, shared me years ago, he said, Jamie, when you don't feel like keeping the vows, and that day might come, then you need to allow the vows to keep you. And so one of the things that I do on a regular basis, and maybe it's easy for me as a pastor, but one of the things I do is I read my marital vows on a regular basis. And I don't know about you, but they move me. June 18, 1988, I said, I, Jamie, take you, Kim, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health to love and to cherish till death do us part. This is my solemn vow according to God's holy ordinance. And with this ring, I pledge you my love. About 10 years ago, Kim and I were uh, in London, Ontario, my first senior pastor, and I was doing a series like this on the family. It wasn't grace in the family. It was, well, maybe legalism in the family. I don't know what I was thinking back then, but just the whole idea of family. And, uh, And at one point... I shared with the church something that Kim and I had done recently with our kids, and I'll never forget this experience. Uh, Kim and I, had, our kids were a lot younger then, maybe about 7, 9, and 11, and uh, we sat them down during this series, and because of all the stuff that was going on in culture around them, seeing their friends' parents get divorced and having to deal with all of that, we decided we wanted to inject some security into their lives. So we sat our children down uh, at one night, and we just said, you know, we just want to let you guys know that though you see a lot of, you know, terrible stuff happening in some of the families of your friends and around you, that we want you to know that you're secure in this family and that there is nothing outside of death that would ever cause your mom or I to leave each other. We looked at our kids in the eyes, and Kim said, there is nothing your dad would do that would ever cause me to leave him. I will stay with him through everything. And I looked at the kids and I said, there's nothing your mom would ever do that would ever cause me to leave her. I will stay with her for the rest of my life. We just want you kids to have that security. So we did that with our kids, and then I shared it with the church that Sunday, again about 10 years ago. And I'll never forget, one person came up to me after the service just firing up mad, just hot. And they said, how could you share that with your children? How could you give them that kind of security when you don't know if you're really going to do that? How could you make that promise to them, you know, and set them up for potential failure? I remember not even thinking about it. I just looked at this person and I said, think about what you're saying. I said, 10 years before this, I made a vow before Almighty God for the same. The only thing I'm doing is telling my kids what I did 10 years ago. And I said, and if I made the promise to God that I'll never leave this woman, then surely I can tell my kids that I'm still carrying through with this. It's rare that I stump somebody. It really felt good in that moment to do that. (laughs) Because I thought to myself, that's how our culture thinks, isn't it? Our culture tends to think today that, that, no, you, you can't make that kind of commitment. But folks, you can. 
And again, we're going to see next week, I'm a realist. I mean, I know it's difficult. I know there's very rough roads. Some of you are there right now. But the reality is, is that God has said that when we make a vow, we can carry through with our vow. It's something that we're capable of doing. That's the first thing I would leave you with this morning. Second thing, and this one is going to be more for men because I find women are much better at this, is to strive for intimacy. Strive for intimacy. It sounds so simple, but it's not. Again, I believe intimacy is the glue that holds a marriage on a practical level together. It really is. Most men are afraid of the word intimacy. We tend to strive for success, significance, adventure, acclaim, wealth, status, physical well-being, anything but intimacy. But you know, the word intimacy is actually a good friend when it comes to God, our spouses, and our kids. All the word intimacy means is to draw close. That's all the word means. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that if you're in trouble, then draw close to God so that you might receive mercy and find help in your time of need. That's all intimacy is. And I believe that intimacy, as Wayne bore witness to, that idea of communication and drawing close to Bev, is the key to to one's marriage and to the happiness in one's marriage. It's just that it's a taller order for men, I think, than women. We tend to have a lot of defenses. We tend to have a lot of insecurities. We're like a lot of little boys inside of us. And I'm, not no, and I'm no poster child for intimacy, folks. Kim could attest to that. But it's something I strive for every day. The authenticity and the willingness to draw close. And then the third thing that Kim and I have learned over the years is to seek help when the waters get rough. To seek help when the waters get rough. Again, most couples make the mistake of eventually seeking help in their marriage, quite frankly, years after they should have sought help. Probably 95% of the couples that come to the church here for help probably should have come about 10 years ago. And we don't say that to them because it's water under the bridge. But the reality is is that what we're pleading for in this series is that if your marriage is even a hint or a crack in the foundation, then seek help now. I remember back back about 1992, 1993, when Kim and I had been married just a few years, we were starting to see some cracks in the foundation. And I'm so glad that my senior pastor, as I was an associate pastor, said to me, he said, get help now. Seek help now. And we did. And we're very glad that we did. And I encourage you to do that. We have a phenomenal marriage ministry here in this church. We have 80-plus volunteers. It's set up by a guy named Don Farr who does a bang-up job. And our marriage ministry literally is the kind that can offer you help if you're just going through some minor adjustments to whether or not you need 911 type of help. We have ministries for all that. You can check it out online. And I encourage you to seek that help if that's where your marriage is right now. So this week as I was getting ready for this message, uh, Troy, our new worship pastor, sent me a video and said, check this out, you might want to show it in church. I don't show a lot of videos in church. I just don't tend to find them all that helpful, and many of them tend to be kind of mushy and not even all that relevant. I just think pastors think it's cool to show a video, and I gave up being cool about 10 years ago, and so I don't do that anymore. But I watched this video, and I watched it in my office, and I was moved, and then I showed it to Kim, and she was moved. It's a music video called, uh, let me get the title exactly right, it's Andrew Peterson, and it's called Dancing in the Minefields. I thought it was a great song and a great visual for God's design for marriage from a very realistic perspective. So look up here on the screen, and then I'll come and close us in prayer. Well, I was 19, you were 21, the year we got in. 
Father, what a great visual uh, to end this message on, the idea of dancing in a minefield, and yet the reality is you've called us to dance nonetheless. And I pray, God, that as we started today, that no matter where each one of us might be with this thing called marriage, that you, as the God of hope and love and grace and mercy and truth, would infuse that in each one of us. And that, Lord, no matter what our circumstances might be, that we might be able to look to you today and realize that you are a God who constantly comes through. And so God bless us, I pray. That, Lord, for those of us who are, can celebrate a very long and successful marriage, God, I pray that we might take joy today in the truths that we've looked at. Lord, for those of us who might be struggling and hurting in our marriage, God, give us hope. 
as we continue to focus on your design and even next week the solutions that you provide that God you are one who brings redemption healing restoration to our lives thank you for your word thank you for your truth thank you that you never leave us we grab onto that now in Jesus holy and precious name and all of God's people say together amen God bless you we'll see you guys next week